Let's talk development. Episode seven. Welcome to today's edition of Let's Talk Development. Uh, I've been um, very generously been asked to uh, have this discussion with uh, somebody who's a dear friend and obviously um, very hi- very highly respected in his field, Ozair Yunus. He's the director of the Pakistan Initiative at the Atlantic Council South Asia Center. He is also vice president of the Asia Group. Um, Uzair uh, writes regularly on politics and economic issues. He's uh, appeared in Dawn, a newspaper in Pakistan, various news outlets such as CNN, CNBC, Bloomberg. Um, I don't think he needs uh, much of a, uh, an introduction. Uh, he's well known across uh, uh, the various platforms that anybody perhaps uses uh to uh, find out about Pakistan and the uh, region uh, that we live in and exist in. Um, uh, we're going to talk to Uzair today about the larger shifts uh, in the geo-strategic uh, uh, world, uh, as we may see it, which are directly impacting Pakistan or are likely to impact Pakistan um, in the coming days and how this is uh, affecting the way Pakistan approach, uh, w- operates, uh, its economy, its politics. Um, uh, welcome, uh, Uzair. Thank you so much for joining us uh, uh, today. Thank uh, you, Arifa. It's a pleasure to be on. Uh, no, no, it's great always uh, having a talk with you. Uh, uh, we go, as you well know, we're going to talk about the geopolitical situation, the geostrategic situation that Pakistan finds itself in. Before we sort of delve into the issue, um, a quick overview perhaps of the uh, points or the issues that, you know, we will be keeping an eye on or should be keeping an eye on the world or the region around Pakistan that's changing. A quick overview before we go into the details. Sure, Arifat. And, you know, as I was prepping uh, for this particular conversation, um, I started looking at some of my old notes from graduate school, which was almost a decade ago now, and some of the things we were talking about at that point in time. Um, This was still sort of, you know, the post-financial crisis environment. Um, I vividly remember being in the United States at that time. Some of the conversations on the Republican side were about the threat uh, of Russia. Um, and it was dismissed, uh, you know, vehemently at that point in time in the political discourse in the United States. And here we are with the Russian invasion of Ukraine still still ongoing and that war continuing to this day. And in the in those notes, there were a couple of things that stood out to me that perhaps have accelerated in the last couple of years that we should talk about. The first was that there was a rising China that people were keeping an eye out on. Post its entry into the World Trade Organization, the economy continued to grow. And there was this broad belief, at least through the 90s and the early 2000s, that uh, a more developed China would eventually be part of a more liberal international open world order. Um, Post-2008, that view continued, began to change. And since the pandemic, that has accelerated. So the the perception or, or the shifts in the international order because of a rising China is the first big shift that we need to mm. be paying attention to. And what's that doing in the region, but more broadly uh, to the global economy as well. The second big shift it has been, as I alluded to earlier, um, the Russian military modernization and the impact that has had on the global order. 
um, an invasion in Europe, uh, you know, since World War II has been taken very seriously. But more importantly, not only uh, is this about the invasion itself, but also because of the the way in which the Russians were modernizing their military, it's made people on the military side pay attention, right? The new toys that the Russians had, what have they been able to do against a far smaller Ukrainian military that, of course, has been supplied by the United States and its allies. So the implications of that are shifting alliances in particular, you know, at the day we're recording this in a few days' time, uh, Narendra Modi will be in the United States for what is going to be, um, and by the time this podcast comes out, will have been a significant uh, engagement between India and the United States. So that's number two. And then number three is sort of the you know shift in balance of power where middle powers, for example, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, Japan, South Korea, etc., are beginning to look at the world and say, okay, how do we fit into this world order? And what is going to be our posture militarily, economically, in terms of diplomacy and alliances um, to not only look at uh, a rising China, in the case of the Japanese and the South Koreans and the Philippines, et cetera, in East Asia, but in the context of the Saudi and, and Gulf monarchies, um, in terms of what does a post-oil economy look like and what do we need to do to prepare for that today so that, you know, we invest in the technologies of the future because the petrodollar will not be as significant in, let's say, the next 10 to 15, 20 years as Europe and the United States in particular goes towards electric mobility. So I think those three trends, basically, the rise of China, the impact of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the shifting sort of nature of the global economy in particular, you know, due to climate change and clean energy mobility needs, um, is, is creating uh, a, a sort of major shift that has perhaps, we would say, accelerated due to the pandemic. Was there a great overview. Now, obviously, you know, before uh, anything else, the first question comes is, where does Pakistan fit into this? Um, you know, a country that is, of course, um, has this alliance or great relationship with China, um, has been in a, you know, a close relationship with the U.S. in the recent, till in the recent past, we can say a country that has also based its entire foreign policy on geostrategic rents, on being able to leverage whatever global politics or regional politics was taking place in the backyard. Where does Pakistan find itself in all of this? Or where should it find itself? Uh, or is there a different answer to both these questions? That's a great, you know, I was going to get to that. So let's start with the should, because then we can get to what is not working, right? Because okay. there is there are two dimensions here uh, in terms of the internal crises in Pakistan as well. Where Pakistan should fit into this shifting world order um, is a country that can straddle the rivalry between the United States and China. And as a result of that, manage its relationships in a way where it becomes a power broker, at least in West Asia and the greater Middle East. And the reason why I say that is because Pakistan has had historically close relations with the Saudis, with the Emiratis, and increasingly with the Qataris in recent years because of the LNG deals. 
And of course, there is a significant number of Pakistanis in that part of the world earning remittances and being part of the economic and cultural milieu of the Gulf, essentially. So there's that natural, uh, you know, connectedness there. Then you have Pakistan's historic relations with countries like Turkey, uh, which have been friends and growing uh, strong friends. And Turkey being a NATO ally gives Pakistan an inlay into sort of the broader European conversation as well. Um, and then, of course, Pakistan, we often hear Pakistan's geostrategic positioning argument uh, as, a, as a country that allows access into Central Asia, into Western China, etc. And again, those are all opportunities. Um, the other thing that should have been also as part of this, and we can get into, uh, you know, the attempts that have been made to enable that over the decades, um, is basically, uh, you know, a thaw in the relationship with India that opens up access to markets on the Indian side that increases integration and trade. Um, and so Pakistan, if you look at its position as a country of 250 million people, uh, the most, uh, you know, experienced, well-drilled, uh, mechanized, modern in, uh, military in the region in terms of the Muslim-majority countries in the region um, has a position, the only Muslim nuclear power, um, a country that has a lot of talent to offer and has had historic ties with a number of the significant players on the geopolitical map uh, should be a key power broker, right, as a middle power. But it isn't. And it isn't because Pakistan's strategy tra tragedy has been one of missed opportunities where right now an economic and political crisis with no end in sight has meant that the country is very inward looking. Everyone's looking at what's going to happen in the next six months. How do we get out of this default-like scenario in the economy? The economy is comatose. People are trying to leave the country. It's really, you know, the sick man of South Asia, as I describe it frequently. So if Pakistan were to or would have gotten its act together, let's say, five, seven, ten years ago and continued a positive trajectory, it would have been a key destination for all of these powers. Uh, but unfortunately, it isn't at this point in time. Uzair, I'm too, I don't know whether I should say that I'm going to play devil's advocate or this is. Uh, just the counter view, you know, you've talked about the should. But again, the whole point here is that uh, because Pakistan has enjoyed a certain kind of geostrategic rent, um, I would argue that this is perhaps the reason it has not been able to make these changes 10 or 15 years ago. Because 10 or 15 years ago, Pakistan was looking at perhaps a very different world. And was not paying attention to anything that may change in the coming days. And that's perhaps uh, why it is where it is today. Could I argue that? I would actually agree with you 100%, right? I think the inflow of geopolitical rents in the last 20 years, the two big instances of that have been the war on terror uh, with the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan allowed a certain inflow of dollars into the country both in the form of military assistance, but also economic aid. Um, you know, people in Pakistan have tried to revise that argument of saying, oh, that aid was not enough, and we lost a lot more as a country, as sort of the blowback from that war. And perhaps there's some a lot of truth to that argument. But the inflow of those dollars, you know, kept up the economy, sort of in, in sort of the house of cars that was built was sustained by that inflow, right? Um, and then, of course, there was 
As a result of that, the U.S.-led Bretton Woods Economic Order, continuing to provide the IMF funds and the World Bank funds associated with it and the ADB flows, etc., that all come because the IMF was continuing to backstop the economy. Now, that's a problem, and we've heard the finance minister say that uh, geopolitics is being played against Pakistan, right? But I would argue that it's not that geopolitics is being played against Pakistan. It's just that the international order, in particular the United States and Pakistani parlance, has become neutral, right? So now we don't like, Pakistani elites don't like uh, to be treated like everybody else with the same terms and conditions, and as Haqdar is scratching his head, and saying, wait a minute, I, I'm used to getting all the waivers. Where are the waivers now? And why isn't the president calling the Treasury Secretary to give us the waivers, right? Uh, or get us the waivers from the IMF. So then that was the first instance. The second instance, obviously, was China with the BRI um, and CPEC as the crown jewel of the BRI, pumping in a lot of money into big infrastructure development in Pakistan, much of which Pakistan needed, by the way, right? Like you remember and I remember um, the days of 18-hour blackouts in Pakistani cities because there wasn't enough power. So the Chinese had built it. But then the question was, what do you do with that? Can you pay that money back? Did you invest in your economic resilience um, to export, to earn the dollars that would have been needed to pay back and service that debt, et cetera, et cetera. And I think those things, at least in the last 20 years, and then we can go back to the Afghan Jihad of the 80s, or the Cold War of the Cito Cento era back in the 50s, 60s as well, meant that Pakistani elites were used to getting cheap dollars coming in. And as a result of which, they did not invest in building the capabilities that are necessary to be relevant in today's world order, right? So if you have, uh, if you are unable to make the case for why manufacturing should happen at, on your shores, because of a shifting global supply chain and the China plus one strategy, as it's broadly called, um, or French shoring or near shoring, or be relevant in terms of access to critical minerals like copper, which is the famous Rico Dick case in Pakistan's, uh, you know, past history. Um, all of that means that, you know, everybody's like, well, yes, we know you need money. Yes, there's a broad business case for you to get that money because there's opportunities for investment in Pakistan but we're not cutting free checks anymore. That's the message, for example, from Saudi Arabia now. So, so long as Pakistan does not reform itself, I wrote, the, I think the last point I'll make on this is I think a couple of years ago, when Pakistan's then national security advisor started talking about geoeconomics as a strategy, I wrote an op-ed piece for Dawn, arguing that the most challenging part of that pivot is going to be the structure of the state itself. And the way I compared it to was that geopolitics is like playing with a rock band, right? You need a good drummer and a good bassist, a good guitarist, and you have a great Linkin Park band, right? Or your Rolling Stones. Uh, but geoeconomics is like being the orchestra. And you need everybody to play in sync, 50, 60, you know, musicians playing in sync with the conductor, making sure everybody's in tune, much harder to pull off. And Pakistan for 75 years became used to playing as the rock band, and now it has to reimagine itself as a, as the orchestra, as a symphony orchestra, and it's clearly struggling to make to pull that off. Okay, two um, slight not a slight detour, but just to go into two issues here before we move on to this, uh, you know, the details of the orchestra that you're talking about. One is, of course, I mean, you know, you said there were two factors here. One was the war on terror, uh, uh, the the aid coming in from the west. 
uh, obviously, especially with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, really, there's no need for it anymore. So nobody's interested. And of course, uh, there are other commitments now or other uh, crises such as Ukraine for the West to deal with. BRI did happen. Um, nothing perhaps has changed for China. Yet, uh, you know, we did get rid of the electricity shortages. But has something changed in our relationship with China? I think to an extent it has. And and obviously the Chinese way of doing diplomacy is one where they won't openly say that, right? But you see mur hear murmurings of this and see this in evidence. What do I mean by that? The Chinese invested a bunch of money, let's say, in Pakistan's power sector with guaranteed rates of return in dollar-denominated terms. And to my count so far, there's over a billion and a half or between, let's say, one to two billion dollars worth of uh, payouts that are owed to the Chinese on the power sector that have yet been paid out. Right. So at some point, um, you know, people like to make money, not lose money, even when it's related to your strategic allies. So the Chinese are probably asking that question. Well, what about those returns? And their ambassadors and diplomats have been on the record in terms of, you know, news reports confirming that they raised this issue with the Pakistanis. So that was a big one. The second one was obviously they were concerned about security in, in Pakistan, you know, going as far back as the Rail Sharif era, there was talk of a new division to be raised in Balochistan to secure the Western corridor of CPEC. And then of course, we've had terror attacks targeting Chinese teachers in Karachi, for example, or the attacks on Chinese engineers and the abductions, etc. So there has been a souring of sentiment, so to speak. In fact, I was told by uh, at least two sources that in recent meetings in Beijing, uh, Xi Jinping himself raised some of these concerns about security and the money owed to the Chinese investors in the power sector, right? That you need to fix this problem. And so the Chinese perhaps are, you know, a bit concerned at the very least, if I were to be diplomatic about it, uh, about Pakistan's trajectory and the economic prospects of the country. Um, and, and so I think they are a bit hesitant to put, you know, more good money after bad money, so to speak. Um, and, and more importantly, they have internal issues to deal with as well. So you mentioned that, you know, the West is dealing with Ukraine and, and sort of Russia. Well, the Chinese are dealing with that, too. And the Chinese are also dealing with sort of the, you know, the East Asia pivot with the bases in the Philippines and new submarines being, you know, deals being signed with the Australians and the Americans and the British. So they also have a lot on their plate internationally. And more importantly, the zero COVID, uh, you know, lockdown policy in China has hurt their economy a lot as well. So there is a lot of concern about youth unemployment, real estate debt. Uh, municipal debt, all of those things that perhaps now they're like, okay, Pakistan is just one more problem to deal with. And that problem does not want to solve itself out or get its own house in order at this point in time. So they're also looking at different priorities at the moment as well. Obviously, I mean, I, I'm i going to now ask what is perhaps has become a very, uh, you know, overused um, or often asked question how do we fix this? How do we get, how do we replace the rock band with uh, the orchestra? How do we start tuning the instruments to, you know, make our slowly try and get, uh, churning out that symphony for lack of a better phrase? 
Well, I think there there's a few things, right? I think the first step over here has to be a recognition, at least among the ruling elite across institutions, I would say, that the old way of doing business clearly is not working. Um, and while the old way of doing business may have enriched them, I frequently refer to Pakistan's economy as a kleptocracy, where a very narrow segment of elite have not only occupied key resources through their political and economic power, but have been extracting these resources at a pace at which they're not replenishing anymore, right? So now the pie is shrinking and everyone's fighting over a shrinking pie. So first of all, you have to accept that in any state, even a medieval state, um, collecting revenues from everybody in a fair and equal manner is critical to operating efficiently, right? Um, uh, the example like I get to my mind is, you know, because Pakistanis uh, love the old Ottoman era dramas from Turkey, Ertugrul, etc., is that the most feared men um, in any empire of that era used to be the military commanders of any district that they were overseeing, uh, but right behind them would be the taxman. And if the taxman came up and you refused to pay, while well, the commander was going to follow suit very quickly to make sure that you paid up, even if you were a feudal lord, right? If you're a vassal, uh, you had to pay up. Um, so one, you have to have fair taxes in this country. Um, uh, what do I mean by that? Well, the UNDP says um, that every year in Pakistan, almost $18 billion um, are provided as, as sort of handouts to elite segments of society. This includes feudal landlords, this includes business conglomerates. This includes the military conglomerates, etc. So you need to recuperate some of those, you know, handouts to make the sovereign solvent because the sovereign can't keep giving these out. It's broke. It needs money. That's number one. Number two is that you need a recognition that um, the cuckoo economic theories that have been developed and implemented and experimented in Pakistan. Um, need to be abandoned and we need to go back to the basic economic theories of running any economy. Those are things like you can't keep overvaluing a currency that you don't earn enough of, no matter what the risks or the, uh, you know, your own choices related to that might be. Um, you cannot continue to sell power at a price that you cannot produce and transmit it at. So you need to solve that problem. And you cannot continue uh, to run state-owned enterprises that are making losses and are bleeding resources to the tune of hundreds of billions of rupees a year. Just not doable. So you need to reform that very structure of how you operate uh, a government. But if I think most importantly, uh, we need to go back to the basics of, of you know looking at the people of Pakistan, in particular its women, and make them part of this economy. No modern economy, in my view, can progress with a youth literacy rate of 70%. This is the second bottom. Pakistan is second from bottom after Afghanistan in the SARC countries. Every other country has a youth literacy rate of over 90%. We talk about this being the era of human talent uh, and, and technology and all of that. How are you going to be relevant in the modern era when nearly... 30% of your youth is illiterate. Forget about the quality of skilling, right? I'm just saying basic sentences in English or the language of their choice, they are unable to do. One in, you know, 30% of them. And if you look at young women, it's half, right? So again, how are you going to solve the economic problem when your, your sort of future mothers of your country, half of them are illiterate? You just can't. Um, then that bleeds into women participation in the labor force, 
which then leads to higher population growth rates. And that obviously creates a different set of challenges around, around health and education and investment and savings and all of that, right? Um, so a lot of people in Pakistan say, well, what's the out-of-the-box solution here? You, you're, you're an anchor. You've heard this so many times, right? Um, and, and I think you and I will agree on this. Well, you don't need out-of-the-box solutions. Just go back to the basics. Um, go back to educating your people. Go back to having security of life, property, and contracts. And Pakistani people are enterprising enough, talented enough, much like human beings all over the world. When you give them the basic tools, they will make stuff work. The bureaucracy in India is no different than the bureaucracy in Pakistan. Uh, the people of India are no different than the people of Pakistan. It's just that they've been better educated and have a more structured way of operating a political economy where it's like, okay, bit by bit, we will improve. And things are there for us all to see. Bangladesh is a case in point. I think uh, you know this, maybe some of the audience may know this, but I'll repeat this figure. In 1971, when Bangladesh became independent, its GDP per capita was half that of Pakistan. Today, it's 50% more. So today, Pakistan's GDP per capita is half that of Bangladesh. They've flipped it around. And if you look at how they flipped it around, it's basic stuff. Educated their women, invested in healthcare and education across the board, and said, we will follow rational economic policies despite corruption, despite authoritarianism, despite lack of a free media. We will do the basics right so that people can have access to cheap food, they can have access to cheap education. They can be part of a society that manufactures things and exports things. And bit by bit, we will progress. And I think Pakistanis are always looking for that jumpstart solution. And in a bit to that, basically electrocute themselves because you try to turn on a generator too many times without knowing what you're doing. You're going to like shock yourself every single time. So I would say go back to the basics. So let me ask here, and I mean, you know, uh, the the point is that I I think everybody knows this. Uh, you know, we like to talk about the out of the box uh, solution or uh, you know some uh, this shortcut to it. But I think I I mean that's the sense I get, and I can be wrong that everybody knows what the issue is. Our greatest tragedy, I would say, rather than just calling it a problem, I would say our greatest tragedy is that we just don't know how to take that first step. We seem to be so caught into this uh, cycle of, uh, I mean, elite fight infighting uh, for, uh, that we, we cannot take that first step. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, where you could perhaps then Maybe I could ask you that, okay, what went wrong? We took that first step, but we ma couldn't manage it. We just haven't been able to do that. What is going to break this cycle? I mean, you know, and I ask this genuinely because this is something I've been grappling with um, as someone, you know, who discusses these crises on a daily basis and gets paid to do it. I think there's two ways to look at this, right? The more optimistic um, way of analyzing how to get out of this crisis is to say, well, Pakistan has still some modicum of democracy left in its system, which will then lead to a recognition among the populace that the dynasts that they've been trying to elect or in part trying to elect because most of the time they don't even get a fair share or a fair say in who they elect as, as the people of Pakistan um, just are not able to deliver um, the solution. So we need more progressive people 
who understand the pain of the citizens of Pakistan and want to invest in building their capacity to be elected to parliament and to the provincial assemblies, etc. But even that is not happening. I just look at what happened a couple of days ago um, in the elections for the local bodies in Karachi. Um, the fact that an unelected representative was able to become mayor because the laws were changed after the elections were held to pave the way for him to be elected. And as if that was not enough, um, people were refused entry into the, you know, the, the electoral context as well. The people who were elected by it to the union councils, um, it's a sham. All right. So clearly... Um, that pathway, there are significant hurdles to that, and Pakistan is a polarized society. So that optimistic scenario of more progressive politics uh, leading to a change um, is unlikely, but at least the most desirable in my view. I think the second one is the more pessimistic uh, you know, outcome, and perhaps in my view, increasingly becoming more and more, uh, has a higher and higher probability as time passes, which is that the amount of repression uh, eventually will lead to a significant outburst among the people themselves. And and again, we often talk about in Pakistan, when you talk about this, people will say, oh, are you saying there's going to be a revolution? There has never been a revolution in Pakistan. I'm like, you're wrong. There has been a revolution in 1971. The majority of the country left. It's the only example in history of a country where the majority of the population left without taking the name itself. Right? Yeah, the majority seceded. It's never happened. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, you, you have to, you know, be quite ignorant to argue that the people of Pakistan have not rebelled and revolted against their uh, rulers. The people of the subcontinent revolted against the colonizers in 1947 and got their independence through partition. Uh, which was a tragedy at an emotional human level in terms of the violence in Bengal and Punjab in particular. But they revolted and they said, enough of you, right? And in 1971, the people of Bangladesh, what is now called Bangladesh, revolted against what they thought as the oppressive system uh, in West Pakistan. And the people of Sindh, in rural Sindh, in Balochistan, in parts of Hever Pakhtunkhwa, have been agitating. The longest running, and it's not part of the mainstream discourse in Pakistan, but for years, the people of Gwadar have been peacefully protesting for access to clean water and livelihoods, etc. So I think that scenario then becomes dangerous in the sense that if you have the people of the country revolt in whatever way, the state has enormous kinetic power um, and has shown an ability to quash that power. In fact, it's very paranoid of these types of grassroots movements from emerging because of the experience it has had in 1971. So it quashes them before they even get, get going. The PTM is a case in point. The terror cases against uh, the protest leaders in Gwadar is another case in point. And there are many other examples across Pakistan's history. But I think that repression becomes a cycle that sooner or later breaks. Either you sort of quash everybody down, which is you know where I fear Pakistan is going at this point in time, or you enable uh, a level of representation that leads to the resolution of key challenges that the people face in terms of access, again, security of life, property, and contracts. And I think what Pakistan's elites are making the mistake of doing at this point in time in particular with the crisis we have on our hands is to not recognize that they need to give up and sacrifice 
some of the wealth that they have to protect what is the country, right? And I think their refusal to do so consistently is the most concerning thing to me because they are fighting over a shrinking pie for more and more resources of that shrinking pie while the people are being burdened by 50 plus percent food inflation. And you cannot sustain this, especially what we've already talked in the context of what we've already talked about, which is that the geopolitical rents are no longer coming in. So it used to be the case that the Americans or the Chinese or whoever would provide you the dollars to create that patron or reinforce that patron-client relationship that kept the people at bay. But now when you run out of those resources, are you willing to tax yourselves, essentially, to save the system? And if you're not, and this is the question that I don't have an answer to, is how do you convince the beneficiaries of the status quo, a status quo that is untenable at this point in time, to reform it themselves? And if you cannot do that, then we have a prolonged crisis that does not bode well for 240 plus million people in the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Because we've been talking about, obviously, you know, the geostrategic situation and how it's led to, uh, you know, the domestic situation being where it is now. Um, so, you know, I mean, obviously, uh, the question that I would like to ask is, is there any way the international community can perhaps guide Pakistan at least in the right direction so that we're facing the right way or they just can't be bothered anymore? or that they've tried doing it and it's just a hopeless situation. I mean, nobody in Pakistan is willing to listen. I think they have been trying and they've continued to try. I don't think entirely the international community or Pakistan's friends and partners have given up, right? So I'll give you the example of uh, a few months ago, I was talking to some Saudi interlocutors. This is earlier this year. So the crisis was not as severe as it was what it is right now. And I asked them, well, what's the Saudi point of view on the crisis in Pakistan? And will you, you know, are you continuing to willing to support the country and its people? And they said, of course, yes, we are. But we're asking our brothers and sisters in Pakistan that we talk to is to do what we ourselves are doing. And I was like, well, what is that? They're like, we're taxing our own people. We're charging them the price of oil at the pump. That is the price of oil at the pump. Now, and slowly going towards that, we're implementing labor market reforms. We're trying to bring our women into the workforce. We're trying to give our youth a way to have representation and feel that their aspirations and ambitions will be met within the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, right? So we're asking Islamabad and our Pakistani friends and brothers, in their words, um, was to do the same thing to reform and reorient and think about the future and think about their younger generations. And I'm like, if you do that, of course we will stand by you because we have a decades-long relationship that is built on shared values, culture, norms, and strategic interests, right? So the Saudis have communicated that clearly. The Chinese have communicated that clearly as well because they have stakes in Pakistan in a rising you know, in, in a world order where China and U.S. are becoming more and more competitive, the last thing the Chinese would want is the country with the crown jewel of the BRI sliding down into a state of crisis, right? That is irrecoverable, let's say, because that's that's a big diplomatic defeat for them. And it, it, lose, it makes them lose international stature because everybody will say, look, 
here's the example. When you get in bed with the Chinese, this is what happens, right? So, of course, they don't want that. I would even argue the Europeans in the United States does not want that to happen because a country of 250 million people with nuclear weapons and immense ethnic sectarian fault lines, if it goes down the way of, let's say, a Libya or a Syria, um, is not good for anybody, right? And so they don't want that to happen. And oh, by the way, they also have a significant economic stake in Pakistan through FDI, but also cultural and diaspora connectivity that leads to political pressure. For example, that pressure we're seeing this in Washington these days in terms of the PTI lobby advocating on the Hill, etc. They have political power and they're exercising that political power. So they don't want that. And I would even argue even India would not want that, right? Because uh, rising India, the last thing it wants is basically on the a line of control, a Pakistan that is descending downwards into a state of default where 250 million people are running out of food. Well, where are they eventually going to go? Right. Exactly. And what what's going to happen as a result of that? Well, India is going to feel the pain of that happening. They felt the pain of Sri Lanka going down that path. And Sri Lanka is a tiny island nation compared to Pakistan. Right. So even the Indians would not want that. So I think my point is everybody wants to see a stable, prosperous Pakistan that is able to be the player that it should be, as we talked about earlier on in this episode. The problem is that it's Pakistan's ruling elite that are unwilling to change their ways or unwilling to recognize that to be relevant in this new world order, you have to do things a bit differently. And everybody's doing things a bit differently now. Even the Saudis are doing things a bit differently. Um, and I think that's where the disconnect and frustration is. And it's being expressed in terms of right now, the competing statements from the IMF and the finance minister is an example of that, that everybody's frustrated. And I think in my view, at least humbly, uh, much of that blame for that frustration lies with the ruling elites of Pakistan because they're unwilling to change their ways. So if uh, what about China? I mean, you mentioned that, but you know, they all feel this way. Can they push Pakistan or is it just limited to you know, advising Pakistan to do the right thing. And um, sort of a secondary question with this is that, uh, you know, we assume, or at least people like myself assume that when this advice does come from friends, um, it would mean uh, encouraging Pakistan to perhaps, you know, go towards a, a more democratic uh, route. But, you know, is it possible that... If we take this advice, we go the other way because a number of these countries that, you know, are strong allies of Pakistan are also not, um, you know, the countries that we would look at in terms of inspirations for democracy, if I may call it that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a fundamental challenge here. Right. Like, let's start with 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 China and its its interests right now. One could argue that eventually, you know, the Chinese will prevent default from happening in Pakistan, which they have been. They've been rolling over the loans consistently to make sure that that does not happen. And so there's a moral hazard problem here that says, OK, uh, we've been bailed out before. We will be bailed out again. This, you know, you know this better than I do. You're on the ground in Pakistan that every conversation about default like scenarios in Pakistan will likely end with we're too big to fail. So the world will come. I was trying to avoid using that phrase. 
<laughs> so so there definitely is that view and the Chinese obviously are now stuck with this as well. There's a moral hazard problem. Now one could argue that if the rivalry between the United States and China were to sharpen um, and the United States remains uh, indifferent to Pakistan as it has been for the last couple of years, at least under President Joe Biden's term, um, that the Chinese may say, okay, we'll give you a big bailout, but we need naval access to Gwadar or we need strategic locations, right? And Pakistan has provided those strategic locations to the United States in the past. So what's different this time around? That then changes the dynamic significantly for Pakistan's diplomacy and its positioning in, in the international community, because then it has picked a side and it may be forced to pick a side because of the elite's inability to reform. So I would hope that they reform to maintain that sort of balance that is critical to Pakistan's own interests in this emerging world order, which is we're with everybody, right? Uh, friendship with all and malice towards none, something like that. And then you play that role as, as a big country that has its own independent posture. Um, and you don't want to lose that at all. Um, but, you know, there is also this issue, as you alluded to, are the political systems of these countries worth emulating, uh, especially in a country uh, with significant diversity, with a history of centralization and the blowback from the people towards that centralization of power? Um, and the answer to that clearly is no. If Pakistani elites saying that they can have a surveillance-like state like the Chinese or the Saudis, um, and control it, well, that's going to be very, very challenging because Saudi Arabia and China is not Pakistan, right? There is the ethnic makeup is different. Uh, the number of people is different. The scale of the challenge is different. And thankfully for Pakistanis, I would argue that the incompetence we see on the economic and the public health and the education domain also bleeds into the security domain to an extent as well, which means that you know, the Chinese-type clampdown is not possible, thankfully, in that way. Incompetence helps over there as well, one could argue. Um, so I think that's, and, and again, the choice of that system is for the people of Pakistan to make. And I would argue that 75 years of history is enough for us to know now and learn from experience that the idea of having a very strong center of having a more authoritarian way of ruling this part of the world is simply not going to work. Um, it's just our culture is very different. Our traditions are very different. Uh, you know, our, and I, I'll give you an example from my grad school again, but going back to that, that, you know, it would be very difficult for us, our professors, to have sort of the Japanese and the Chinese and the Koreans from sharing their opinions in class. And the Europeans and the Americans would share it, but be very good at diplomacy, right? In, in terms of saying that. The most raucous amongst us in the classroom were the subcontinents, the South Asians, right? There would be, if there were three South Asians in the class, there would be 15 opinions coming from them only in that one hour of conversation, right? So I think that's just... sense uh, argumentative Indian, I would say it's the argumentative South Asian. Exactly. And we've always been, we've always been like that. And so I think that would be disaster if anybody wants to try that experiment. We've tried this before, and that this is why, you know, the longest dictatorships in Pakistan come nowhere close to the dictatorships of Egypt or, or Syria or Iraq, for example, because we're very different. Our political culture is different. Um, so I think, and that's also the beauty of the region, right, in the sense that we're argumentative, we'll, we'll find our way. 
Um, but I think, again, if we just go back to the basics, I think there's enough latent capability in the people of Pakistan to resolve and come out of these challenges stronger and better. But at this point, the issue is this elite infighting that needs to end somehow, and we just don't know how it will end. Um, I think, Uzair, we're running out of time. Very quickly, a last uh, question, um, and... Uh, that is, I mean, you've spoken about this idea that, you know, we, if uh, uh, that sort of we go towards China um, and China bails us out. But my counter question here would be that with the kind of commitments uh, or that we have towards the West, especially in terms of IMF, in terms of our bilateral loans to uh, that we owe to the West, multilateral as well, is it really a you know, a, a real possibility for us to make this kind of a turn in the sense that do we not, are we not so stuck into both the Western financial world and perhaps China that it's perhaps not even practically possible for Pakistan to choose one and say we can turn our back on the other? I think the, that's a good question. So I think the only practical way in which Pakistan can make that turn is go down the North Korea route where you're essentially a closed economy and a vassal state of, of China. And again, cannot happen in my view because the scale of North Korea is very different than the scale of the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. So I don't think that's possible. And I think even the Chinese will not want Pakistan to go down that route primarily because if the Chinese are seen as being overly generous to one strategic ally today, in terms of bailing it out and basically owning it, right, beyond the IMF and beyond the Western multilateral institutions, then there is Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, not Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, other countries, perhaps Indonesia down the road, perhaps Malaysia down the road that will say, well, or a lot of sub-Saharan African countries that have also taken Chinese debt or Latin American countries like Argentina that have Chinese debt that might say, well, you gave that bailout to the Pakistanis. Why not us, right? And and I don't think the Chinese want to get in the business of doing that just yet. Because one, they're not used to running the world like that. This is not how they uh, have operated for decades. So there's institutional, lack of institutional capacity, right? We need to remember the fact that the Bretton Woods international financial system emerged out of the post-European colonial order. So the Europeans and the West at large has been at it for a while. The Chinese have not. So they need to learn this bit by bit. So they don't want to rush into this, obviously, as well. But more importantly, they do not want to take ownership, economically speaking, of a country as complex as Pakistan because the current structure works for them, right? Let the IMF dictate the reform agenda. We will stand by. Once the IMF moves forward, we will continue to strengthen that relationship. And that way... The Chinese operate as a more influential influential player within the Bretton Woods ecosystem, rather than overly overtly coming out in opposition to that system and the West saying, "Well, have a go at it." And that's not that easy, right? And I think that's where the interests align between the West and the Chinese and everybody else when it at least comes to Pakistan, in the sense that they all have been saying consistently, "Follow the IMS prescription." do the reforms, get the basics right, and all of us will fund you, and all of us will stand by you. But if you choose not to do that, and the IMF does not give you the clean bill of health, essentially, through a 
staff level agreement, then we will ensure we roll over the loans, but beyond that, don't expect much. And that's where we are. And I think that's what Pakistanis need to uh, understand is that the world is not out to get them. It's that they need to figure out how it is that they want to change themselves for the world to be able to help them in the first place. The world is also not out there to just stand there and wait to catch us because we refuse to um, stop ourselves from jumping out of the window. Thank you so much, Uzair. Um, I think that was a fascinating conversation and I hope that everybody who listens to it enjoys it as much as I did. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.